Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. In this episode, I interview Johara Farhadia, the CIO and Executive Director of the Illinois State Board of Investment. She oversees a $20 billion defined benefit plan and a $4.5 billion deferred compensation plan. In this episode, she shares with us her career history from starting out as an entry-level person at ISBE, focusing on minority and emerging investment managers, to becoming CIO. She discusses the BlackRock Emerging Broker Council and discusses ISBE's relationship with its strategic partners. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't we begin with you telling us who you are and what you do? Great. Um, so my name is Johara Farhadieh. I'm the Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at the Illinois State Board of Investment, which is a $20 billion defined benefit uh, pension fund on behalf of the state employees, the judges, and the General Assembly of Illinois, as well as a $4.5 billion uh, deferred compensation plan um, for state of Illinois employees. Great. I'm curious, how has COVID-19 impacted you and the way you do business? What's been your biggest challenge? Yeah. So at first, I thought the biggest challenge was going to be to execute the ability to work from home. But that actually went much smoother and, and it was easier than I'd anticipated. I think now that we are working remotely, perhaps much longer than we'd anticipated, I think for us, it's going to be able to, uh, to figure out how to pivot how to do investment manager due diligence remotely. For me as a manager, I think I have to learn new techniques on to continue to motivate individuals working remotely, to continue to instill the culture that we have at ISBE while working remotely. Things like that, that I'm spending more time sort of reading, um, sort of talking to the staff. I used to do something where I would take uh, the staff out every once in a while. I, I keep a little list to ensure that I've at least had a touch point with each staff member, whether it's a walk uh, around the loop or a coffee, um, lunch, uh, that's much harder to do now remotely. So I pick up the phone and, and try to call and, and not just talk about work, but also see how they're doing, um, things like that. I, I think that shift is maybe a little bit diff uh, of a struggle. So managing the team and setting culture especially when we hire new employees, I think it's going to be a challenge. And then determining how to do due diligence is going to be a challenge, especially on new investments. Someone recently said this to me, but the importance of like breaking bread with managers and like getting to know them maybe in a informal way is always sort of been part of their due diligence process. And and for us, it wasn't necessarily part of a strict due diligence process, but it's always good to be able to kind of see people away from that conference room where you're asking specific questions, all of that is going to change. So I, I'm curious to see how we evolve uh, specifically at ISBE, but overall as an industry and uh, sort of see what maybe the long-term impacts are of us either delaying the the investments or just all accepting the, the new environment. Before diving further, let's step back for a bit. Would love to hear more about your background where are you from, your career history, and what drew you to ISBE? 
Sure. So I have my MBA from DePaul University. I also have uh, my bachelor's degree in finance from DePaul University. I worked at a Taft-Hartley fund out of college, and that's probably where I met my first mentor. And that's where this mentor sort of insisted I get my MBA because they paid 100% tuition reimbursement, no retention contract, which is completely unheard of these days. Um, And so having that guidance from a mentor to force me to go back to school, perhaps much earlier than I'd anticipated wanting to go back to get my MBA, was in hindsight probably one of the smart decisions because I'm not in debt um, in terms of getting my MBA. So from there, I um, after getting my MBA, I left that Taft-Hartley fund and moved on to the private sector doing some valuation work and then sort of realized that I wanted to do something more meaningful, something related with investments and finance, but still something that I could be passionate about. Um, and the same mentor, you know, Mark View, who pushed me to get my MBA, was the one that actually spotted the open position at the Illinois State Board of Investment. and told me to submit my resume. And at that time, of course, as many of us do, I thought I wasn't qualified for the position. And of course, he just said, submit your resume. Um, My understanding is that they were near the end of the interview process, but asked me to come in and ultimately I got the job. So if I would have never submitted the resume, obviously, who, who knows? But that encouragement, again, from a mentor, that had more sort of a career experience, et cetera, helped guide me and, and, and sort of give me that push I needed. Um, so from there, I've been at ISBE for about 13 years. Um, I would say I sort of moved up in the ranks. My initial position was an entry-level position. And then um, I spent majority of my time at the Illinois State Board responsible for promoting uh, the use of minority and women-owned firms throughout the investment portfolio. And that really is you know, the main reason that I, I stayed so long at the Illinois State Board is because I felt like I was able to make an impact, make a difference, but also stay in an industry that I'm passionate about. So it was a perfect job for me at the end of the day because I, I felt like it had purpose, but I also appreciated learning and continuing to hone in my expertise uh, as an institutional investor. And then here I am today as the executive director and chief investment officer. Thank you for sharing your story. And I I think it's always great whenever there are mentors that can help guide you and put you on a path that you might not have thought of before. You mentioned earlier that when you began your role, that you focused on the minority and emerging investment managers. How has this focus shifted since you've become CIO? That's a great, great, great question. I feel like the the experience I had as a more junior person advocating for diversity and inclusion is so different than the experience I'm having today as executive director and CIO of the same pension fund. I think now I'm afforded the position and the opportunity to actually be the one to create the ideas, set the tone, and and build the culture around it so that it's not just something so specific to the legislation in Illinois, which requires us um, to set goals to allocate to minority and women-owned firms. So I didn't realize the power I had in this position. 
And, and it's actually surprised me to see the reaction of the private sector when I ask certain questions in this role. So if I can give you an example, I think when I was in the more junior role trying to advocate for allocating to minority and women-owned firms, it really felt more of like a process. This is what the legislation states, and we want to achieve our goals that are in our policy. So how do we get there you know, step one, step two, step three. Now that I have that experience under my belt and sort of aware of the lay of the land and understand the industry, I think I I was given the opportunity to be more creative because ever since being in that role, I mean, as a whole, not just ISBE specific, not just Illinois pension funds, but as a, as a nation in the financial industry as a whole, we have not moved the needle at all in the way of diversity and and especially in the the financial industry we really have not moved the needle and so the things that i started to focus on is how are we going to move the needle because we can continue down the same path it is be that we have been for the last 15 years and we're probably going to be in the same spot 15 years from now if we do that so what can we do and i sort of racked my brain and every now and then there would be like a small crack or a window that would open and i'm like this could be an opportunity and the first opportunity came immediately as i was a cio of isby and that was our rfp for a large passive investor uh, investment manager so in doing that, I came up with the idea of bundling all our passive assets to try and reduce the pricing. That was the first idea. So now there was going to be one provider versus maybe having multiple passive providers, because I knew that heft would give us the leverage and weight we would want in terms of negotiating not only fees, but other items like talking about diversity, asking for additional perhaps risk-related software any other sort of discretionary uh, asset management that we might want. So it turned into this behemoth RFP that I thought would be valuable to any provider to, to want to obtain. And so the conversation came less about indexing because we, we all know that indexing isn't necessarily that complicated in terms of selection of the asset manager. The conversation became about these other items and one of the top items was diversity. And so part of ISBE's policy is to ask the investment managers to adhere to our goals, uh, their best efforts in terms of minority brokerage. So whenever we retain a manager, we provide them with ISBE's policy, and there's a goal to trade, for example, 30% of trades, um, domestic equity trades with minority or women-owned broker-dealers. That's something we've been doing for like the last 15 years. I thought that was great and all, and I don't think that would have been an issue for any manager at the end of the day, especially at this point. What the question became was, we're not only interested in you trading ISBE's assets with these minority brokers, we want you to trade your entire book of business with minority brokers. Not not so specific anymore of just ISBE, because in my mind, I have this motto, if it's good enough for ISBE, it's good enough for you. You know, there's no reason we should be carving out certain exceptions to meet these goals just because ISBE's asking you. And if you're comfortable doing it for us with our money, then you should be comfortable doing it with the rest of your business. And so I appreciated the response back from uh, BlackRock. They created something called the Emerging Broker Council. Um, and so their trading team is on that council. I am on that council 
along with members of Loop Capital and Cabrera Capital, two minority-owned uh, broker-dealers. And this way, I think you get a perspective from the institutional investor side. You get the perspective of the minority broker as well as the large asset manager. And I think if we move the needle there, eventually, I think the com competition in this space will see what's being done and see that it's that it, you're capable of doing it and hopefully sort of have a ripple effect. And, and I'm optimistic and I hope that that is how you move the needle is sort of coming and creating like and thinking of it from a, uh, a larger perspective, because as large as ISB is, we're, we're a small piece of the asset management world. And, and so I hope over time, conversations like this grow. It's not just ISB talking to BlackRock, but maybe it's a lot more. And then we talk to the State Streets and Northern and all the other players in this space and, and, and hope to, to affect change so that 15 years from now, we can actually have a different conversation. I think that's really great. And what you said, if it's good enough for Isby, it should be good enough for their other clients. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, how long has the Minority Broker-Dealer Council been functioning for? And then what change have you seen since then? Yeah, so um, this it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful council. I think it's still uh, fairly nascent and, and we're sort of establishing what roles and what we want to do on the council. But ultimately for me, the council is really to hold everyone accountable, all parties involved accountable. Um, and so that level of transparency that I normally wouldn't get, I think one is what I'm getting from the council, but two, what, what I'm noticing is, like anything, there's always a hurdle. And what this council is sort of helping out is figuring out ways around that hurdle. So sometimes there could be instances where broker-dealers don't have the infrastructure or necessarily whatever it may take to do certain types of trades. Well, this forum, this council affords us that opportunity to have that dialogue where all three parties are involved from different perspectives and can sort of hash out what that hurdle is, or hash out the solution to that hurdle. And, and I think that's really what the council is. I think it's sort of being able to find those ways around, you know, what typically most people would say, oh, no, you, you don't have access or you don't have that, then we can't use you to, to trade. This allows us to have that open dialogue. And perhaps there's certain trades that Minority brokers are going to say, yeah, we're actually not interested in sort of going in that direction with our business. So, you know, we respectfully understand why we wouldn't be selected or actually we're working on this infrastructure. We need six months to set it up so that these dialogues can can happen by having this council. So, like I said, it's evolving. Um, but so far in the few meetings that we've had, we've had these kind of conversations and in my goal is to see an uptick over time. And I always hear Melody say numbers don't lie. Melody Hobson uh, from Ariel and numbers don't lie. So just seeing what the numbers are today, I hope a year from now, those numbers are different. And, and um, there's an increase in, in that opportunity set. Given your role as CIO, what have you seen are some of the obstacles and what could help propel that growth? You know, it's a great question. So both like on brokerage and asset management, I feel like it's actually a project that we're sort of discussing how to 
operate. But one of our trustees, um, it's called the Williams Project. Um, her name is uh, Jay Williams. And she asked me this, this similar question of, you know, she she posed it like we're having the same conversation we had 25 years ago when I was in this industry. Like, why are we still having it? So um, and she really wants data and numbers behind that, like not just sort of my idea as to or my experience as to why this is happening. So for you, I can I can share with you my thoughts on on why. But it is a project that we're trying to sort of figure out how we could get the resources to, to put the why with numbers and data behind it. I think leadership plays a big part in all of this. I think you need to have people from the top down asking for this and prioritizing. I've seen, and I'm definitely not going to name names, but I've spoken to other public funds. I've spoken to other institutional investors. This is not, this was not on their radar. Maybe today it's on their radar, which is great, but diversity and inclusion was not something that they even thought of, right? I I mean, so if you're not talking about it, then you're not going to, make change or prioritize it. In Illinois, it's been prioritized because there's legislation mandating it. So that's been the advantage. The disadvantage could be, and I don't necessarily know 100%, but by mandating it, there had to be a definition of what a minority and woman-owned firm was. And so in Illinois, you have to be 51% owned and controlled by a minority, a woman, or a person with a disability and be less than $10 billion. Again, these are my personal opinions, but I haven't really seen a large asset manager that's minority or woman-owned that is comparable to anywhere near a BlackRock, a JP Morgan, Blackstone, any of those. Like, So when you're saying you're capping it at $10 billion, and I understand there's a lot under there that, but I, so for me, when you define it like that, it creates issues, but I respect and understand why there needs to be a definition for it. I also think by saying it has to be 51% owned and controlled, that's great. That's one way of sort of advocating and giving uh, opportunities to diverse firms. But there's also, I feel like we need to have consideration on other aspects, you know, the diverse staffing and workforce and hiring, all of that. So it could be a majority-owned firm, but if it's a very diverse firm at the end of the day that's creating these opportunities for someone to ultimately leave and start their own, you know. So I feel like by, again, the definition, it's narrow. We're we're being somewhat narrow uh, in our thought process in Illinois. And so you, you end up feeling like you're checking the box to certain sort of, am I, meeting the criteria outlined in the legislation versus the spirit of the legislation, why that legislation was put in place in the first place. Um, And so someone like me, I'm going to naturally try and and understand that this is the spirit of the legislation. I'm going to adhere to it, of course, by law, but I'm also going to have to think outside the box. And that takes me to the BlackRock discussion I had with you. And I have I have other ones that I'm I'm working on on the asset management side that I hope uh, disrupt and, and move the needle. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm excited to hear about what other conversations you're going to be having. And Acceler Investors says we want investment management to be more representative of our diverse population. And I agree with you about not necessarily having certain caps because we just want 
investment management to be more diverse. And whether that is at the majority owned firms so that one day a person of color can leave and start their own fund. I think that's very important. Now, moving on to learn more about ISB's investment strategy. Many asset owners have moved away from fund of funds, but ISB largely uses fund of funds. Can you share with us the thinking behind this strategy? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good question. I view it a little differently than necessarily fund of funds. They're really, they're fund of fund like structures, but really it's just ISB is, um, it's an ISB separate account. So at the end of the day, all the relationships are ISBs. The assets are all under ISB. So it's a little different of a structure. I also understand that when you think of fund of funds and the added layer of fees, that sort of comes into play. I think there's a unique situation at ISB that we were able to take advantage of the relationships we have. We have really good relationships with these strategic partners that we structured these fund of fund like products with. We built strong relationships that we'd already had with these partners and the fees that we're paying today are really no different than the fees we were paying prior, whether it was a consulting relationship or a hedge fund structured relationship, the fees didn't increase. We just took advantage of the resources that they have. They're the ones with boots on the grounds, doing manager due diligence, seeing the entire landscape. And so we took advantage of whatever resources and research capabilities they have by building out these discretionary relationships with them. Um, so from a fee perspective, it's not much different than the fee we were paying. So that's one. I, I don't think, you know, ISBE's not known for tolerating, you know, fees. We, we've, if you look at the operating budget and ultimately the, you know, investment fee uh, budget, it's, it's, overall, we operate on a 15 basis point budget for investment management fees and uh, operating. So it's it's a very lean, but effective and efficient team. So I think that would be the first sort of misconception around that is the fund to fund sort of structure and layer. What we wanted was to align the interest of the general consultant with ISBE, first and foremost, versus manager selection and managers. Um, I also, with no offense to general consultants, I feel like their fee, which you know, maybe they should ask for more. Their fee is sort of, it, it doesn't sort of incentivize and give them the opportunity to, to build out manager selection and research in the same way that a firm that really is an advisor gets paid to do the same thing and do manager selection. Again, this is just based on my experience. Maybe they're, I'm, I'm generalizing the general consultants but I think the fee differential is so significant that something in the business model has to give. So what we did was align the general consultant with ISB and have them be an extension of staff. And then we built on the advisory relationships to do manager selection. And it's worked out really well thus far for ISB. Our public markets portfolio is doing really well. We moved away from having a very diversified public markets portfolio within each strategic partner to having a concentrated portfolio where their job is to be opportunistic, select managers that we hope can be persistent in generating alpha. And so 
that's worked out on the public market side. The, on the private market side, what I've seen work out for us is the healthy competition that's created by sharing asset classes with each strategic partner. So, for example, an opportunistic credit. So that's one allocation ISB has. It's divided amongst three partners. We have a group called Hamilton Lane, which I'm sure many are familiar with, High Vista, and the Rock Creek Group. Hamilton Lane is uh, like a safe, large private markets consultant and investment advisor. And so I think their size directs them a little bit in terms of what they see in the market, where I think a smaller boutique shop, again, I, I, I'm generalizing. So it's not to say that Hamilton Lane couldn't do whatever Rock Creek and High Vista can do, but it's in terms of like specialty and what is natural for that business. They're smaller boutique shops, High Vista and Rock Creek. So I think the firms that they underwrite are going to be slightly different. So it creates this opportunity set for ISBE to see the lay of the land, but it also creates a healthy competition where they all want their portfolio to be the best portfolio at the end of the day, especially if they know the clients right there being able to compare each each one. So I, I'm a really big believer in this model. It's working out. Do I think it could be replicated and easily recreated? Probably not, because I think fees would play a significant role if I were to say is be, you know, starting from scratch. I, I, I think we were fortunate enough to establish these relationships that we have. Um, but I, I don't know that it's easily it's a model that could easily be replicated. What would surprise other asset owners about what's worked for ISB's investment strategy? I don't know if this would be surprising, but, you know, we do, like in our policy, we outline a two-thirds passive, one-thirds active sort of strategy. And I mean, the passive, as much as like you hear out there that passive, you know, is not going to work for the long haul, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's just so much criticism around it. I mean, it's worked. ISB's public market portfolio ranked in like the top decile and majority of it is indexed. I mean, it's working. It worked through the crisis even. So like, I get it. There's a skew to, you know, the, the, the big names and the tech sort of names that are out there. But again, what's wrong with, you know, what's wrong with getting that so cheap? in an index versus paying high fees to a active asset managers. Now, again, it doesn't mean we don't believe in active managers. We, like I told you, our public markets portfolio, the active portfolio also played a part in adding value and between six to 800 basis points of alpha. I mean, so these guys are crushing it too. I, I'm just saying, I think there's always a lot of negativity around indexing, but it's fared well, especially for large institutional investors. I, I just don't think you get away without indexing. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Johara. Please stay tuned for part two. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.